Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung and welcome to Prophecy Today. I need 90 minutes. If you'll give it to me, I'll give you the world and we'll talk with our broadcast partners looking at current events with great insight into these events and then trying to determine how they fit into the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word. We've got them all standing by. Ken Timmerman's first. He'll come up in just a moment. We'll talk about geopolitical events happening around the world. I'm going to be talking with John Rood. He covers the European Union for us, and he has had contact with Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister of Great Britain. We'll be talking about Brexit and the problem there in the Persian Gulf that uh, this new Prime Minister is going to have to deal with. And then we're going to talk with David James. He'll look at public school sex education. We're going to focus on New York City. That's the largest educational operation of any city in the world. Itamar Marcus will join us. Winky Madad from Israel will be talking about the time of mourning, a three-week period of time when the Jews mourn the destruction of the first and second temples and pray for the third temple to be built very, very soon. That's all ahead, so keep the dial right where it is. You're listening to Prophecy Today. Judy and I, right after the broadcast, going to the airport, we're going to fly up to Boston. Then we'll rent a car, go over to the Alton Bay Christian Conference Center. It's in Alton Bay, New Hampshire, right there on Lake Winnipesaukee. It's an unbelievable place to be in the summertime. I'm going to be speaking Sunday through Wednesday, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, 7 p.m. on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, and then Wednesday evening as well with a prophecy Q&A about an hour before each of the evening broadcast. I know many of you listen to life-changing radio, Bill Blount's radio network up there in the Northeast, so I want you to come join us as we study the prophetic Word of God. Now let's get to Ken. Ken, a lot to talk about, so let's get it right underway. Number one, Hamas has sent their leadership over to Tehran, Iran, to meet with the Iranian leadership, including the supreme leader of the Supreme Council. They're planning how they can eliminate Israel. I mean, Iran has got its fingers in everything. They want to wipe out the Jewish state. That's been their plan. They're going to bring Hamas in to do that. Well, that's right. And they've been working with Hamas for some time. But uh, this week, the Hamas leadership sent one of the founders of the Izzadin al-Qasim Brigade, a guy named Saleh Aruri, to Tehran. Now, this guy is a notorious terrorist. He's responsible for a number of extremely deadly terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians and soldiers. He's clearly on the Israeli most wanted list. There's a bounty on his head. So he goes to Tehran for so-called political talks. Well, we know what those political talks amount to. Uh, essentially how to get weapons to Hamas through the Israeli blockade. Uh, He's based in Lebanon, Aruri is, um, but he runs operational networks inside uh, Lebanon, Turkey, but also inside Israel itself. So this was an operational meeting this week in Tehran between a top Hamas military-slash-terrorist leader and the leadership of the Islamic State 
of Iran. Yes, and as I've read information, you can probably give him better information yourself. The supreme leader is vowing not to give up on the Palestinians. Is that uh, kind of a selfish not giving up because they want them to help try to destroy the Jewish state, or are they really seriously concerned about what's happening with Hamas and the Palestinians? I, I think these are crocodile tears that they <laughs> they shed over the fate of Palestinians uh, under Israeli occupation. You know, it's a it's a pathetic political attitude that they have. Uh, even the Saudis have backed off from that, and the Arabs don't really care any longer what happens to the Palestinians because they feel that the Palestinian leadership has so sabotaged every possible effort to bring peace between Israel and the Palestinian Authority or Israel and Hamas that it's not worth expending effort any longer. Khamenei, the Iranian supreme leader, is interested in one thing only, and that is using Hamas as part of Iran's global plan to encircle and, and to destroy the state of Israel. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. Hey, hey, Ken, I read a very interesting opinion piece this week. It was entitled, Eat Iran's Lunch Before They Eat Us for Dinner. <laughs> I sent it to you. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, uh, basically, I mean, the argument is uh, we have a small window, a reducing window, one that's shrinking in size, to stop the Iranian nuclear weapons program by enhancing sanctions against them and by increasing the pressure on the regime. And if we don't do that, uh, the Iranians will eat us, as this particular author says. I, I think that is generally a, a fair assessment. Uh, the Iranians are absolutely dedicated to uh, expanding their nuclear program. They announced this past week that they have now reached enrichment levels of 4. 5%. That's a significant level above what is allowed under, or what was allowed under the failed Iran nuclear deal. And they announced that they will be going to 20% shortly. People need to know, I don't want to get into the physics of this, uh, it's a little bit complicated, but the, the biggest step in nuclear rich, enrichment is going from yellow cake uranium, natural uranium, up to about 3.5%. From 35 to 45 is quite a bit less. From four and a half to 20 is even less than that. So the big hurdle has already been passed by Iran, and these stepped-up levels of enrichment really demonstrate a desire on their part to have a bomb on the ready. In other words, to have nuclear weapons material on the ready so they can break out in a matter of weeks should they decide to assemble those weapons and uh, threaten Israel with them. And then there was another headline that said, World War Three warning. And it was talking about how the U.S.-Iranian conflict could actually last for maybe even 50 years. That would be World War III. Now, with what you've just told us, that seems very viable as well, doesn't it? Well, we only need another 10, Jimmy. It's been going on (laughs) since 1979. So we have had a covert war underway between the Islamic State of Iran and the United States since they took over and overthrew the Shah in January of 1979. So that war has already lasted for, for 40 years. Most of the time, the United States has not recognized a state of war with Iran. But uh, I can tell you, the events of recent weeks have really been kicking up the tensions, the tensions in the Persian Gulf, the attacks on British tankers and other international oil tankers. 
Those have certainly gotten the attention of U.S. military leaders. But I can tell you, they've also gotten the attention of leaders and intelligence officials in the U.K. The U.K. has been warning over this past week of Iranian covert plans to launch terror attacks in Britain or elsewhere in the European Union. Now, you know, over the past year, there have been a number of these plots that have been revealed by uh, the Dutch authorities and by others, things that did not make it into the newspapers when they were happening in 2015, 2016, 2017. Just this past week, and I can reveal it here on this show, the British authorities shut down a a scheduled British Airlines flight from Cairo to London, possibly because... They believed it was carrying Iranian-backed terrorists into, into Britain. Now, we don't know. They've not made an announcement about that, but there were a couple hundred people stranded in the Cairo airport uh, as they were scratching their heads and trying to figure out what was going on. And a number of young men who uh, apparently had gone through some Iranian terror training program. Well, in light of what you've just said, do you think the new prime minister, Boris Johnson, is up to dealing with that situation? Well, I, I don't have a particular insight into Boris Johnson. I understand that uh, one, of, one of your other broadcast partners has recently met with him, and I would defer to his judgment. But uh, Boris Johnson is no slouch. I mean, he's not, he's not a dummy, and he's uh, not new to the world stage, having already served as foreign minister. You know, it's also interesting with all the provocation that's going on, especially in the Persian Gulf, by Iran. It looks like they want to be bombed by either Great Britain or, in particular, the United States. Why in the world would they want to be bombed? Or Israel. Let's not forget. Or Israel. And I think, I think the, the, the reason is simple. The, the Iranians, their public diplomatic stance is... We are just on the defense. We would never, ever attack anybody. Mm. Look, we never attacked anybody in Iraq. Not true. We never attacked anybody in Yemen. Not true. But, of course, we would never attack Israel or the United States or Great Britain. Uh, also not true. We will, however, immediately retaliate with devastating force should the United States, Britain, or Israel be so unwise as to attack us. That's what they're trying to tell the world, that any strike against them by the U.S., Britain, or Israel, will be met with devastating force. They're they're trying to set this up. So a lot of people believe, a lot of serious analysts believe, that the the strategy of the Iranian regime over these past couple weeks has been to sucker punch the U.S., to get the U.S. or the Brits to strike back militarily, so then they could launch a massive counterstrike. For example, sinking a U.S. aircraft carrier uh, in or near the Persian Gulf, something that would be absolutely unheard of since World War II and would definitely lead to a huge escalation of military uh, conflict. Well, we can't forget the eschatology of the Iranians either, because if a major catastrophe takes place, that would bring back the Mahdi, the Islamic Messiah. They would head to Jerusalem and set up their worldwide caliphate. Ken, it's always a pleasure to be able to talk with you. You're so knowledgeable of world events. You've been almost in every place we ever talk about, and you have great insight. So we so appreciate how you assist us right here on Prophecy Today, understanding these geopolitical events. Thanks, buddy. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, David Dolan's standing by. He'll come to the broadcast table with his Middle East news update. 
That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We've got David Dolan standing by. He is going to give us a Middle East news update. I have to tell you, this is a key portion of our weekend program, and we use him during the week as well. We have a daily 15-minute broadcast uh, that's located on my website. If you miss it from a radio station that may be carrying it, it's a full report of what David really tells us when he comes with us to the broadcast table here on Prophecy Today weekend. David will be here in a moment. Let me just tell you, Judy and I are going to fly up to Boston. We're going to rent a car and then go up into New Hampshire. We'll be at the Alton Bay Christian Conference Center. We're going to be there Sunday through Wednesday. And we're going to have a great time. That's in Alton Bay, New Hampshire. Brad Smith, who's the director there, is encouraging everybody. Now, I'll be speaking in the evenings, and that will be Sunday through Wednesday at 7 p.m., and then we'll have a prophecy Q&A at 6 o'clock each of those evenings. I'll also be speaking on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We're going to be teaching the prophetic word of God. What a very important time in history for us to be studying. Bible prophecy. That is Alton Bay, New Hampshire. Come study the prophetic word of God with us. Well, let's go now to David. He's at the broadcast table. David, Hamas sent many of their representatives to Tehran, Iran. They're in a meeting with the leaders of Iran. They're planning to figure out how to eliminate the state of Israel. What are your thoughts? What's Israel thinking about this? 
Well, Jimmy, just another very clear sign that Hamas is now pretty fully under Iran's tutelage, if not control. We have to uh, point out that this is an exclusively Sunni Muslim movement, Hamas. The Palestinians, very few, just a handful, are Shiite Muslims, which, of course, Iran is the head country of the Shiite branch of Islam. And so it's very unusual, really, that, that Hamas would be so close to a Shiite power. But, of course, their war against Israel is their number one thing, and uh, to destroy the Jewish state is obviously a goal shared by Iran, as they say all the time. So they're natural allies in that sense. And in recent years, the um, relationship has been stepped up. The flow of weapons has been increasing all the time. Hamas militants have been joining Islamic Jihad Palestinians, who've been for a much longer period of time close to Iran. They have been really all along uh, an ally of Iran. Hamas, not so much so but they've been joining them in recent years, sending men to be trained in military tactics in Iran. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the uh, Hamas leadership uh, cozying up to Iran as well. So this is an interesting development. We also have Hamas being touted in Syria by Lebanon. The Hezbollah militia is trying to improve the relationship between the Assad regime, the Syrian Assad regime, and Hamas. Those relations have been very strained because Hamas basically supported some of the anti-Assad Sunni Muslim rebel groups that were fighting against the regime there. So Hezbollah stepping in, and of course Hezbollah and Hamas have become very close and coordinate their military activities. So once again, Iran setting up its ducks in a row in the region, strengthening its alliances with both Shiite and Sunni Muslim groups in the area, anybody that will work with them, basically, the Houthi rebels in uh, Yemen among them, and it makes for a mess. It makes for Iranian enemies all around Israel, basically, and that's strategically a very troubling problem for the Israelis. Well, as has been said many times, politics makes strange bedfellows. You have Hamas of the Sunni persuasion in the body politic of the Islamic world, and of course Iran, the Shiites, and they're working together. Normally that's not the case, is it? Well, indeed not. But the the war in Syria in particular acted as a catalyst to bring these people together. We had on uh, Wednesday morning early this week, early in the morning, an Israeli missile strike, surface missiles on three targets that are, well, actually one was a Russian uh, observation post. It had Russian soldiers in it for the last several years, but they uh, left. And in fact, Jimmy, the uh, Syrian forces and Russian forces are continuing to leave the southern Syria area uh, near the Golan Heights to move to the northwest of the country where the fighting in Idlib province is still raging, the last really major battleground of the Syrian, quote, civil war, which is not just a civil war, everybody involved all around as well, Turkey and Russia and the United States and France and Britain and others. But um, this is a very important development, Jimmy, because the Iranians were moving back into three positions not far from the Golan Heights that they had abandoned under U.S. pressure, U.S. pressure working with the Russians. Uh, Russia said, we've cleaned them out, they're gone, it's, it's fine. 
and Israel's been watching as they've been returning in recent months to these observation posts, one just about eight miles from the Israeli border, Tel Ahara, another just near the strategic Mount Hermon location in northern Israel, where Israel has some major military outposts. So the Israelis aren't tolerating it, and they're going and hitting back. Uh, foreign reports said seven Syrian soldiers were killed. Others said six Iranian soldiers were killed. And Jimmy, earlier this week, an Israeli cabinet minister boasted that Israel's the only uh, power, only country in the region that's actually killing Iranians. He said, you know, we're not just talking about a war with Iran. We are waging it because they're waging it against us. And he said, this is this is a fact, and it really is a fact, Jimmy, and an interesting one. But the battles continue, and Syria remains the main uh, battleground for uh, this uh, fight, proxy fight mainly, but not only between Iran and Israel. Yeah, and it seems like that's how Israel's been able to contain Iran, by using Syria as a battleground. Let me fight my war over there on your piece of real estate, not mine. That's a very interesting strategy. Well, it is, Jimmy, and the truth is that if Iran had not chosen to heed uh, Assad's calls in Syria to come to his aid in, I think it was 2014 and 15, then uh, there wouldn't be direct military actions probably at all between Israel and Iran. We'd have probably some covert operations continuing. Those were going on before 2013 and really go back several decades. But not these direct military strikes on Iranian positions and Iranian troops and soldiers and Hezbollah troops and soldiers. This uh, is only because of the Syrian war and because Syria invited Iran in. Well, Israel says you're not 500, 800 miles away. You're eight miles away now. Your forces are right along our Golan border. They already, of course, were along the Lebanese-Israeli border in the Hezbollah militia, which is strengthening its positions in the south of Lebanon continuously. So that's the fight, and Iran has brought that fight to the Israeli border, not the other way around. Israel hasn't moved into one of Iran's neighboring countries and is attacking it and setting up outposts and doing all these strategically dangerous things. It's Iran that started this and continues it. But uh, the battleground mainly it remains in Syria. The Israeli elections are set for September the 17th. Uh, but briefly, give us a update on how that's going. Does it look like Netanyahu's still going to be able to come out victor again? Well, there's some complications, Jimmy. We've had this week a new alliance, a new party established by Nitzan Horowitz. He's the head of the ultra-left-wing Merits Party, a fairly small party. But he joined with Stav Shafir, who's a female member of the Labor Party. She resigned from the Labor Party to join this new alliance. Very popular politician in Israel. And Ehud Barak, the former prime minister who defeated uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in 1999 to become prime minister. He's back on the scene in this new party, and the polls show they will gain some substantial support. Netanyahu continues to try to patch up the right-wing parties that were in alliance. They split apart after the earlier election this year, and he's trying to get them back together. But the polls show it's going to be very, very close, and possibly this time the left will succeed in uh, gaining more seats 
There's technical reasons there again that I won't go into the weeds, as they say. But it's going to be a close one, Jimmy. And, of course, developments between now and then may change the whole situation if we go to a full U.S.-Iranian conflict. We've already talked about this. It would undoubtedly very much involve Israel. And if that happens in the next, what is it, six or seven weeks before the elections are scheduled, then they may well be postponed. But we'll see about that. But dramatic times and uh, just a whole year of electioneering. The Israelis aren't real thrilled with it. They wish that there weren't a second round, but the prime minister could not form a coalition. That may be the case again. Yes, indeed. And uh, the time now and up to elections is like a lifetime history of what could happen and unfold. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us, he's been doing it for over 35, almost 40 years. We're so glad to have him at our broadcast table as well. David, thank you so very much. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week. You as well, Jimmy. Enjoy the Northeast, and God bless. Thank you, sir. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Edomar Marcus standing by. The Palestinians are saying that uh, the Israelis are Judaizing the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. We'll get into that with Itamar in a moment, right here on Prophecy Today. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. Wow, we just completed about two months of traveling all the way from Indiana up to South Dakota and then back through Wisconsin over into Michigan, down into Ohio, coming in then to North Carolina, South Carolina, into Florida and back home. But after the broadcast today, we've been home for three days. That's enough, they say. They want me going out again. We're headed north right after the broadcast. We're going to fly to Boston, rent a car, and we'll go over to the Alton Bay Christian Conference Center. We want to be there. Brad Smith is inviting anybody and everybody in the area to come to the Bible meetings. The first one will be Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and then 7 p.m. in the evening. We'll be there Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday as well at 7 p.m. with a 6 o'clock prophecy Q&A before each of the evening services. Love to have you come. I love to be in a campground atmosphere. That's what it's going to be like. The Alton Bay Christian Conference Center. You come and join us. It's there in, of course, Alton Bay, New Hampshire. Well, we're going to head now towards Israel because Itamar Marcus who heads up 
powwatch.org. That's their website, powwatch.org, the Palestinian Media Watch. He and his team monitor the electronic media and the print media to see exactly what the leadership of the Palestinian people are really saying to the people. And do they incite the people, etc., etc. Itamar, it's great to have you back on the air again with us. I noticed your latest news report and alert sent out to those of us who want to stay attuned to what's going on in the Palestinian media. You say that the Palestinian Authority is warning that the most dangerous season for Judaization has begun. Now, first of all, explain the word Judaization, if I did pronounce it right. And then what are you talking about? What are the Palestinian people talking about when they say this is the most dangerous season? So first of all, it's an important question because it's one of the biggest problems with the Palestinian Authority. This word, Judaization, that they really have invented, and they use all the time, is a term they use to describe any Jewish activity in the land of Israel. They lie to their people, and they tell them that there never was a Jewish history in the land, there never was a temple, there never was a Western wall that was something that the Jews prayed at. And they claim that all of it was Arab and Muslim. So if a Jew prays at the Western Wall, that's Judaizing the Western Wall. If a Jew goes up to the Temple Mount, that's Judaizing the Temple Mount. If Israel finds archaeological finds that have proof of Israel's existence as a nation, which is happening all the time, proof of the biblical narrative, it's happening all the time, they deny its truth, and they say it's Israel's attempt at Judaization, creating supposedly a Jewish history in the land. Well, of course, we know that it's actually the opposite is true. There never was a Palestinian nation or Palestinian history in the land. Everything they do is Palestinianization uh, when they claim they have a three or four thousand year old nation, when they claim that Jesus was a Palestinian. All of these things are part of their Palestinianization. And as in many other areas, they accuse Israel of doing exactly the crimes that they themselves are the ones committing. I understand the Palestinian Authority is saying that a visit by a Jew to the Temple Mount, which is, by the way, the most sacred piece of real estate for all of the Jews of this world, and it will be for eternity, the Temple Mount key for Judaism and God's plan for the future. They say that if a Jew goes up on the Temple Mount, he's performing a break-in or an invasion. I mean, they're, they're really serious about this, aren't they? Absolutely. They, they claim that the entire Temple Mount is a holy Islamic site. They actually often use words even worse. They call it defilement. A Jew is impure, a Christian likewise. If they go up to the Temple Mount, they're defiling the Temple Mount from its Islamic nature. So it's, it's a very racist attitude as well. So, of course, if Jews go there together with military protection, because the Palestinians there very often would try, do try to attack them, uh, they call it an invasion and a break-in, which, again, is just part of the same lie that they've been expressing all along. Itamar, how in the world can the Muslim world claim that they have the sole right to the Temple Mount? It's all based on the lie that there never was a Jewish presence. When they talk about every aspect of history, everything was Palestinian, I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus, we have heard numerous times from even Mahmoud Abbas himself, that Jesus was a Palestinian. They won't acknowledge that he was Jewish. 
because to do that would mean that the Jews had a presence in Jerusalem. So they erase Jewish history, they erase uh, Christian tradition, they turn it all into Palestinian history and Palestinian tradition. And the same thing about the Temple Mount, the same... The, at the time, the minister of religion went, uh, made a statement that throughout all of history, no Jew ever prayed at the Western Wall prior to the Balfour Declaration. Well, of course, that's totally ridiculous, that the Palestinian Authority has no desire to be in any which way related to truth or related to history. It's all part of their plan to de- delegitimize Israel's existence as a state, make their people angry that Israel exists, make their people believe that Israel has stolen their land. And this, of course, is the foundation not just of hatred, but it's also the foundation of Palestinian terrorism. You know, I understand that the Jewish people are in a three-week period of mourning because of the destruction of the first and second temples that stood there on that temple mount. And they, the Palestinians are saying this is a Judaizing Talmudic holy day. What does that mean? When they want to demonize Jewish uh, religious behavior, they think that by adding the word Talmudic to it, they're demonizing it. So this is what they do for their people. Whenever Jews do any kind of worship anywhere, they say the Jews are doing Talmudic ceremonies. Uh, and this apparently, in their Islamic or Palestinian mind, conjures up images of something evil and sinister, so it's one of those terms that the international community doesn't understand what the Palestinians are referring to, but it's a term they use whenever they want to demonize Jewish worship. They say Talmudic ceremonies. You know, I read in your report that the Palestinian Authority is saying that this is going to cast a shadow over the entire Middle East. They're calling for Arabs and Islamic nations to stop this type of thing, and it looks like they're calling for war. Itamar, could this ignite the entire Middle East? They, it will not succeed in, in igniting the entire Middle East, but the Palestinian Authority likes to threaten violence all the time, religious war all the time. I can't tell you how many times a year they threaten a religious war. If Israel in any way does an expression of our own religious uh, rights in, in Jerusalem. It's a common theme. In fact, the Minister of Religion, Mahmoud al-Abbas, said in one of his talks a few years ago when he was still minister, said that as far as he's concerned, the, the final battle has begun around Jerusalem, and the end of which is the destruction of the Jewish people. So we're talking here about a very fanatically religious population. It's not just the Hamas that's radical, fanatic, religious. It's also the Palestinian Authority and the international community making a big mistake, including the United States, by putting any trust and faith in the Palestinian Authority to be able to or have any interest in creating a peaceful future beside Israel, because that is not what we see when we follow what they tell their people, and especially what they tell their children as well. Well, Itamar, what I think I'm going to do is suggest that the Palestinian people might want to read the ancient Jewish prophet Obadiah, where he says in verses 15 to 18 that the descendants of Esau of Amalek going to be wiped out. That means the Palestinians, not the Jewish people, are going to be wiped out, and that Temple Mount will belong to the Jews. You'll agree with that, wouldn't you? I certainly agree with all the words of of Obadiah, and we see that the Bible and the the prophecies of the the Hebrew prophets are coming true 
two and a half thousand years after they were prophesied right before our very eyes, and it's uh, an amazing period to be living in. Oh, it is an amazing period. I agree with that. This is the reason we go to Itamar Marcus. He heads up Palestinian Media Watch, and we want to keep you abreast of what they're really saying. Itamar, thank you for your service to the world, in fact, but especially to us. We appreciate it. We'll talk again real soon. Thanks. Always great to be with you. What a very important conversation with Itamar Marcus, checking on what the Palestinian media is really talking about and the fact of the Judaizing of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount area. We're going to do somewhat of a follow-up on that conversation. This time it will be with Winky Madad. We're going to bring Winky. He's also in Israel at a place called Shiloh, one of the oldest communities in the state of Israel. And right after the entrance into the promised land, that's where the headquarters for the Jewish nation was. And by the way, Winky, before we get into what I really want to focus on, what about the recent archaeological find there in Shiloh? Well, Jimmy, you're actually catching me just after the 8th Shiloh Conference on Bible and Archaeology, which was held this week. Scarabs, probably one of the oldest found in the area of Israel, over 3,000 and plus years old. Pottery, uh, jewelry. There was a pomegranate, and a new academic article has just been published this past week on the pomegranate that was found, a stone pomegranate, shall I say, that used to hang from a table was found here, and the coins. And so the finds here at Shiloh overwhelmingly align up with the biblical narrative, showing that the chronology of the Bible is the most correct that we know. When you go to Israel, no matter what trip you're on, you need to encourage the leader to make sure they stop by Shiloh and go out and visit that archaeological site. Well, Winky, what I'm wanting to talk to you about is the fast day of the 17th of Tammuz. Now, first of all, explain that. What is this all about? Jimmy, there are two main fast days in the Hebrew calendar. When I say main, I mean they go the full 25 hours, from just before sunset to just after sunset. As we know, the Hebrew days go from the evening to evening rather than from the morning to the morning. Those are Yom Kippur, the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, the Day of Atonement, and the 9th of Av, which usually comes out at the end of July or beginning of August, more or less, which commemorates the destruction of the first and the second temple and a fortress in the revolt against Rome called Betar. In addition, there are several minor fast days, which are from dawn to evening. Dawn to dusk, I think, I guess, would be the poetic phrase. One of them, as you ask me, is the 17th of Tammuz, which commemorates part of the destruction process, if I can point it out that way. In other words, it led up to the destruction of the first temple, and we say that several things happened on that day. Usually they list a list of five, but it's the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem, and that brings in for Orthodox or uh, observant Jews a period of three weeks of mourning that leads up to the ninth of Av. 
I hope everybody remembers all that because I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> and I can understand why. Uh, now, Tammuz, that's one of the Jewish months, correct? That is correct, even though the day, actually, if I'm not mistaken, and you will help me out on this, is actually its origin is in the Babylonian exile. Yeah, that's what I was thinking there for a moment. One of the times when Ezekiel was brought back to Israel, when in the exile, in chapter 8 of the book of Ezekiel, he comes into the temple and there's a convent of virgins who were worshiping Tammuz, which was the name of the son of the mother-son cult, which was established at Babel, Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4. Any connection there at all, do you know? Probably there is a strong connection. If I'm not mistaken, Jimmy, there are very few Hebrew months that we know today that are mentioned in the Bible. It's usually in seasons, like the Passover festival, which is celebrated in the Hebrew month of Nisan, is always referred to basically as the spring festival. And so there was a development, both a cultural and religious development of Judaism, after that first exile, where a lot of things were brought back from Babylon, there are certain biblical critics, Jimmy, as you probably well know, who will insist there's more than just bringing back a few terms or ideas or borrowed religious imagery from Babylon, but we won't get into that. But obviously, Judaism developed over the centuries, and for remaining in Babylon for a while, and then even after the return to Zion of Ezra and Nehemiah, etc., the majority of Jews remained in Babylon, and therefore things seeped into normative Judaism, including names and other things and customs from that geographical location. Well, you were mentioning that on the 17th of Tammuz, the three-week period began, concluded with Tish Ba'av, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. Now, during those three weeks, they're actually simply praying for the temple to be rebuilt, correct? Yes, and in another aspect, it's done through a, a series of acts of mourning. For example, if we were on video chat, Jimmy, you would see that I haven't been shaving since the 17th of Tammuz, and I won't until after Tisha B'Av. I won't cut my hair. Ashkenazi Jews during this period... There'll be no weddings, there'll be no singing with musical instruments, partying, and other aspects. The Sfaradim, the Jews from Arab lands uh, throughout the Middle East, usually restrict that mourning period to the first day of the month of Av. So there are various customs, in other words, expressing mourning. Today, of course, that's complemented by a strong a sense of praying for the return of the temple to be rebuilt. And as you and I have discussed many times, I belong to the idea that we should be visiting the Temple Mount as much as possible and doing other aspects to raise the consciousness of what the temple service means uh, and whether things can be done now or at least prepared for the near future, hopefully. Hopefully, and I believe that every preparation has been made for that to happen. Well, let me change the conversation completely the opposite. Maybe it would be the opposite. I'm not sure how you would consider it. But I want to talk about the new British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Now, as I understand it, he has some connection to Judaism and actually served on a kibbutz early in his 
life itself. Can you tell us anything about that connection at all? Well, as far as I know, and I think he's been on record on that, you can even find it in the various interviews, his maternal great-grandfather was a Jew from Russia. However, those who know the strict interpretation of Jewish genealogy, uh, Jewishness goes through the mother. And therefore, technically, I would have to say he's not Jewish. I wouldn't consider him Jewish. I would congratulate him on his Jewish ancestry, but that is as far as I would personally go. As for the kibbutz period, as many young people of his time, from the late 60s into the uh, late 80s, I would guess, where there was a strong movement of volunteers coming from Europe especially to see what the socialism was on the kibbutz, to pick apples and oranges and do all sorts of things uh, as a youngster. And he was on one of those programs. But he isn't the only person in his cabinet, Jimmy, who has Jewish ancestry. Uh, his defense uh, secretary, Dominic Robb, his grandfather also was Jewish, but did not marry within uh, the Jewish faith, and therefore uh, he technically, again, is not Jewish. And in fact, he was brought up in the Church of England, and I think he's married to a Brazilian Roman Catholic. So mm. we have a variety <laughs> of religious backgrounds in that British cabinet. Well, what about, uh, I know Boris Johnson has great respect for Israel, going to be good, probably, that he's elected as the prime minister now, as it relates to relationship between Great Britain and the Jewish state. I would, I would hope for, uh, to repeat a word I used before, he has been on some occasions less than perfect, but no one on this earth I know, Jimmy, including you and I, are perfect. But overall, he's a strong defender of Israel. He even is very brash about it, and he can be very sharp in his responses. But I want to point out something I think we discussed several months ago. Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, now has a President Trump and a prime minister, Johnson, and several other allies in Europe uh, which is basically a counterfront, if I may use that phrase or term, to the EU, which Boris Johnson is vociferously against. And the EU, as you know, has not been favorable at all to Israel. It's been funding all these anti-Israel activities, uh, passing resolutions and doing all sorts of silly things from our point of view. And now we have a, a counterforce that has been building up over the past few years that might help Israel stave off some of this harsh, unnecessary, and non-fact-based criticism of Israel. Folks, I've told you time and time again, if I have a question I want to ask on any subject, I just simply go to Winky Madad. We've covered archaeology, we've covered the Jewish holy days, the rebuilding of the temple, the new prime minister of Great Britain, I don't know. I don't have enough time to ask him all the questions I'd like to. But, Winky, thank you so much, my good friend. You are a valuable source of information for us. We appreciate it, and we will have a conversation in the near future. Jimmy, both you and I should merit a long time to discuss matters on this earth about the heavenly, uh, divine, and inspired issues that we can live by. So I thank you very much for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners.
Very interesting conversation with Winky Madad talking about the three-week mourning period leading up to Tishbaav, the day when all Jews mourn the destruction of the first and second temples, and the fact is they pray for the third temple to be built very, very soon. And then giving us insight into his thoughts as to the relationship between the new Prime Minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson, and his connection to Judaism. Very favorable. Well, in fact, now I'm going to bring to this broadcast table John Rood, who is the man who covers the European Union for us. He's been in Brussels, living there for over 30 years. He knows the European Union. And John, I would imagine that you've had contact maybe even with Boris Johnson, but you sure have an opinion of the fact he's the new prime minister. What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I haven't spoken to the new prime minister directly, but I've certainly spoken to friends. Yes, I think it's an exciting new day for the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson has been seeing this happening, you know, for some time. He resigned from the foreign minister position under Theresa May in July of 2018. Indeed, seeing this day coming because of the very weak stance that that current government was taking towards Brexit. So here we, we see a commitment to Brexit, and a no, a no deal is most likely the case, uh, simply because for all of the talk that's happening, one primary reasoning that's upon us is there's simply just not time left. Uh, there's no time left to renegotiate anything, and so the European Union is dictating the terms, and so it appears certainly that we will have a commitment to Brexit, which will, you know, prophetically brings us to this time of a real formal disintegration of the European Union. Very, very significant. Yes, and if indeed he's successful with Brexit, that may well be the open door for others to pull out of the European Union as well. Do you think that could happen? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And that's why the European Union is working very hard not to create a precedent that other countries would be able to leave under more or less uh, friendly terms or beneficial terms. But indeed, by allowing or forcing the United Kingdom to leave with a no deal, this is actually sending the opposite message to other nations, where they say, well, if the U.K. doesn't have a deal we can leave without a deal as well. That's going to be more catastrophic to have that attitude uh, prevail. And as you and I have talked in the past, you see a strategy where there may be enough nations pull out of the European Union to bring that number down to 10, which is actually the biblical number for the revival of the Roman Empire. Well, Boris Johnson (laughs) has more on his plate than just the Brexit situation. He has a problem with a tanker, a British flagged tanker that's located there in the Persian Gulf, but they're having some problems right now as it relates to Iran. That's going to be a tough one to solve also, isn't it? Exactly. Boris Johnson, now he is really having his very first test as prime minister because Iran has seized the British flagged oil tanker, and it's kept in a well-protected port. And so there's really calls in the United Kingdom 
to avoid military action seen as being a, a poor choice and unwise. What Iran perceives is that this is sort of a tit-for-tat move because the Iranian tanker had been seized, oh, I imagine about a month ago, on suspicions of breaking the sanctions. So that ship is actually kept in Gibraltar. So Iran is basically saying, you let the ship out of Gibraltar, and then we'll would most likely return the British ship. Although there's really no reason to do that because the ship was strongly suspected of breaking the sanctions, taking oil to Syria. So Boris Johnson has his, his hands full in the Middle East not just with the Strait of Hormuz, but direct uh, events are happening currently with Iran, Syria, Turkey, Egypt, and even Saudi Arabia. Yes, indeed, he does have his hands full. And there seems to be a good relationship between the United States now and Great Britain, between President Trump and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Quick answer, we're running out of time. Do you think it's good for Great Britain that he is now the Prime Minister? I believe so. And and yes, Jimmy, uh, Boris Johnson is perceived as being a supporter of Israel. He can work with President Trump. We'll probably expect a trade pact with the United States. And then I believe you've already covered the situation that his maternal great-grandfather was a Moscow-born Jew. So uh, there's many positive things here for the future, but we're going to lead to things for uh, ultimately disintegration of this current European Union as we know. John Rood, the voice you've been listening to, lived in that part of the world for over 30 years, knows the European Union, and he reveals to us great insight as to the different moves that they make as they make preparation to fulfill Bible prophecy ultimately. John, thank you so very much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I've got David James. He's going to be my last broadcast partner. We'll talk with him about public school sex education. You do not want to miss that conversation. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We move into the last half hour. Thank you for staying with us thus far. If you'll give me another 30 minutes, we'll be able to cover everything I wanted to get to you through the broadcast to help you understand how, as we look at current events in light of biblical prophecy, we can understand the urgency of the moment and where we are in God's time. I want to remind you that Judy and I leave right after the broadcast. We fly to Boston, then drive up to Alton Bay, New Hampshire. Alton Bay Christian Conference Center is where I'll be ministering Sunday through Wednesday. Come and join us. Love to have you come into that beautiful part of the world there in New Hampshire to study the prophetic word of God. Let me tell you about my poll question. Each and every week, I put a poll question up on my home page on the left-hand column. If you'll simply scroll down, there you can find the question. This week, here's the question. The Jews today are in a three-week period of time mourning the destruction of the first and second temples. They will be praying for the rebuilding of the next temple. Since the preparations for the next temple are complete, 
could we be very close to the building of the tribulation temple, which is called for in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Please respond to our poll question. like to know what your thinking is on this particular prophetic issue. And by the way, while you're at the website, prophecytoday.com, that's where you'll find the poll question. Visit Joshua Travel. Learn about the tours that we take to Israel. Prophecytoday.com, the address, and go look at our information about our tours at Joshua Travel. We now bring to this broadcast table David James, and we're going to have a conversation with David focused on an issue that the body of Christ needs to have a biblical understanding of its key for your daily walk and my daily walk with the Lord. Today we're going to follow up on last week's discussion when we briefly talked about the LGBT agenda. We're going to do this because of new guidelines that have been issued by the New York City Department of Education that show how our children are being systematically targeted for indoctrination. Talk to us about this, David. Sure, Jimmy. Well, these uh, most recent New York City school policies came to my attention in an article I read on the Accuracy and Academia website. The announcement for these new policies came out in June, and they include things that should be troubling for any Christian who takes the Bible seriously and who may have children in the New York City public school system. And it should be a wake-up call for anyone, honestly, who may have had any doubts about whether LGBT activists with an agenda are determined to indoctrinate our children with their perverted ideas. In this announcement on the Department of Education website, the lead paragraph opened with this, school's chancellor Richard Carranza today announced the most comprehensive and affirming guidelines for supporting transgender and gender expansive students for New York City schools to date and the Department of Education's first ever guidelines on gender inclusion. So this involves two separate but related sets of guidelines with the policy set to take effect at the start of the 2019-2020 school year. And the chancellor went on to say this, schools are safe havens for students to develop their passions and discover their true identities, and these new guidelines celebrate and affirm all students This Pride Month, meaning June, I'm thrilled to send a clear message to our students. We celebrate you, we respect you, and we support you. You know, I want to remind everybody that New York City's educational department uh, for high school, for elementary, etc., is the largest in the United States, and they are the model for all educational departments in every city, basically, across the world. So that's why we're focusing in on this information I personally moved to New York City back in 1981 to run a radio station there. We had a son who was in the fourth grade, and I didn't put him in the public schools. We weren't able to actually put him in a Christian school. The closest one was 45 miles away. So we started homeschooling with him, and we had a meeting with the chancellor of the education department. Very interesting. That's another story for another time. But David, the LGBT agenda is very real, and I would have to say, as I'm sure you would agree, very dangerous. Sometimes its supporters and its defenders come up with ways to slowly but steadily push the envelope 
and to introduce wedge issues that might seem fairly minor and not really worth fighting or even getting upset about. However, one of those issues in the new guidelines involves changes to school records that can be made without any legal documentation. That's right, and although I would say it's probably not the worst of the policy changes, I do think it's serious, and I would say just represents the tip of the spear. They pick and choose their battles. One of the changes states that students who haven't obtained a legal name change or do not have government ID reflecting their new gender, those students can change their name or gender in their permanent school records with just a parent's permission or even without their parent's permission if they're 18 or older. And all they need to do is submit a request form that's available on the Department of Education website. Another change allows families to self-report their child's gender upon enrollment with the justification being that this establishes a more inclusive process. And prior to these changes, a student's gender was recorded based on the gender on their birth certificate. And among the many disturbing things I would say about this is the fact that while it's conservative Christians who are portrayed as being anti-science, this is the height of anti-science policy because it denies the most fundamental of biological facts. Biological sex and gender don't somehow exist as two discrete and independent aspects of life. It's not as if sex is a biological phenomenon and gender is a psychological phenomenon. They're synonymous and they're genetically determined. Well, as much of a problem as this is, even more troubling to me are things set forth in the guidelines on gender inclusion. These new policies really are just evil. I agree completely, Jimmy. Again, on the Department of Education website, there's this preliminary description. Uh, The first ever guidelines on gender inclusion will help schools implement gender-inclusive curricula programs and practices that are consistent with the administration's commitment to advancing equity now. And one of the ways they're doing this is through policies concerning dress codes. And, And part of it, says that dress codes cannot prohibit students from maintaining or wearing hairstyles closely associated with their gender, race, ethnicity, religion, and so on. And then they're conducting training throughout the summer concerning these guidelines. So, for example, a guy is free to wear a dress, a feminine hairdo, makeup, and jewelry, as long as he says that he identifies as female. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong with that? And, and But a more disturbing issue is the policy that students can no longer be segregated by gender for health classes, including when it's sex education is being taught. And within these guidelines, they can't even talk about gender-specific anatomy. For example, they cannot say sexual male anatomy, but instead they must say one example of sexual anatomy. This is not education. This is agenda-driven indoctrination. And as bad as this is, it gets worse So while schools can have gender-specific restrooms and locker rooms, for example, boys' and girls' locker rooms, the policy specifically states the students must be provided access to facilities consistent with their gender identity asserted at the school. And as you said, this is just evil to the core. Absolutely. And even to go along with what you've just reported to us, New York City isn't the only place in the country, as I mentioned a moment ago, where attacks on our kids by LGBT activists are actually taking place. You also sent me an article about the situation in the girls' locker rooms not far from New York City there in eastern Pennsylvania. 
That's right. That article was by Tony Perkins, who's the president of the Family Research Council, and he was writing about an incident that took place at the Honesdale, Pennsylvania High School, which is about 80 miles northwest of New York City, and it's a school with about 800 students. As it turns out, there had been a change in the school's policies that the administration hadn't let the students or parents know about, except for at least one student. So there was a 15-year-old sophomore girl who was changing for gym class in the girls' locker room when she heard a male voice. So in shock, she and the other girls who were partially dressed turned to see a guy in the locker room wearing women's underwear. And when she got home and told her parents, they called the school's principal and the district superintendent, and their only reaction was apparently to tell the girls they needed to wait outside the girls' locker room until the boy was finished each day. And then in another school to the south of Honesdale, girls ran into the same problem, and as a result, they aren't even using the restroom during the school day because they're worried they'll run into male classmates. And they're also concerned that teachers and the administration in that school will retaliate against them. So going forward, these things are only going to increase around the country. And honestly, I don't see how they can be stopped. Yeah, I would agree with you. I know you're expanding the current Theological Issues course that you'll be teaching in Uganda upcoming in September. I was wondering if you've added anything to the section on the LGBT agenda that would fit into our discussion today. Actually, I have, and I've been working on that section just in the last couple of days. And as I was digging deeper into this whole issue, I found this has been going on for a lot longer than most people probably realize. Back in 1986, there was a CBS school break special called The Truth About Alex, where a guy came out as gay to his high school friend. And these school break specials were aimed at kids after they came home from school. There was another one. Uh, uh, a couple of years later called Other Mothers, where it was discovered that one of the kids had two moms, obviously in a lesbian relationship. And then Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, and the Disney Channel have all had shows and cartoons promoting homosexuality and same-sex attraction as, as normal. Then I found a Huffington Post article from 2015. It was written by a homosexual man, and the title was this. I have come to indoctrinate your children into my LGBTQ agenda. And then in parenthesis, the title says, and I'm not a bit sorry. Then I found an article in the New American from 2017. They ran an article about the UN LGBT czar who has said that when it comes to indoctrinating children, the younger the better. So, Jimmy, there's an old adage that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, and this certainly hasn't been lost on LGBT activists. Very interesting how the LGBT agenda is spreading like it is. Well, let's go back to the problem in public schools for a moment, David. All of this raises the question about what Christian parents can and should do and whether they can even leave their kids in public schools in good conscience. Well, honestly, it's a, it's a tough issue, uh, and every situation is different, every family is different, and obviously every school district is different, although I think many are heading in this direction. So I'm not sure there's just a single one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to schooling. In some places, I'm not sure public schools are leaving Christian parents with much of a choice, though. But on the other hand, homeschooling can also be a daunting proposition for some parents, and it can present a financial challenge as well. Uh, sometimes 
sometimes Christian schools are a viable option, but sometimes those are very expensive as well. And in some places, perhaps vouchers can help offset that. But I would say that whatever the cost, it might be worth whatever sacrifices we need to make as parents for the sake of our children. Uh, on the other hand, I, w- I think the most important thing we can do uh, is to be involved in intentionally discipling our kids. And this would include uh, teaching our kids from a young age what the Bible has to say about all these things that they're going to face in the real world. We're just not going to be able to shelter them forever. And we see this principle in Deuteronomy 6, which begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, He is one. It then goes on to talk about the responsibility of parents to bring the Word of God into every aspect aspect of family life. And no matter what we're able to do about schooling, we do have control of the majority of what is shaping our kids' lives, uh, discussing what they're learning in school, family devotions, a solid Bible-believing church that they can attend, sending them to a Christian summer camp, getting them involved in ministry even at a young age, and teaching them to love and live for the Lord, beginning with as early as they begin to understand what we're even saying. Yes, absolutely. Bottom line, Parents have the responsibility of raising up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Wow, very important subject, David. I'm so glad we chose to discuss this particular issue so all those listening in could get a better understanding of what has happened and make the biblical godly decision. Thank you, David. We'll have another discussion next week on another issue. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be with you again. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll open the Bible. We're going to take a look at the book and deal with all the issues discussed by our broadcast partners. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. (laughs) 
It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we had some outstanding reports from our broadcast partners. Now, I say that each and every week, but they get better and better as we continue on to inform you of these current events that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. These reports help us understand where we are in that end-time scenario. And these reports must go together, of course, with our study of God's Word. The study of God's Word is the top priority, and then we see if these current events fit into God's plan for the future. Both are needed for us to understand today. And by the way, if you missed any of the reports, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There we have archived these reports. You'll be able to listen to any and all if you need to, if you missed anything, or want to hear them again at PTRN on my website. That's how you can do that. And be sure to tell a friend They need to hear these reports to understand and be in lockstep with us as we look for the prophetic events that God wrote down for us to understand in the last days. By the way, this week, let me rehearse what I did with my broadcast partners and then give you a prophetic perspective. Ken Timmerman is the man who covers geopolitical activities for us. Ken was there. Again, we were looking at Iran. And you know, all that we talk about basically is Iran today. Now, that is key. Do you understand how important it is? Because they are the continual focus almost on a daily basis, and not only by the United States and Israel, but basically by the world. In particular, again, now we see that Great Britain is involved with an Iranian situation there in the Persian Gulf. As we continue to talk about Iran, we have to understand they are key. We focus on Iran because it reveals the urgency of the moment. Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5, it mentions Persia. That's modern-day Iran. Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, it mentions tremblings out of the east. That's referring to modern-day Iran. And do not forget Psalm 83, verse 4, where it says that, All of these that are in this alignment to destroy the Jewish state of Israel come out of their council meeting and say, let's wipe Israel off the face of the earth, that her name be forgotten forever. That's why we focus on Iran and all the activities in the Middle East that are setting the stage for that alignment of nations to try to wipe out the Jewish state of Israel. David Dolan gave us his Middle East news update. We talked about Hamas. They went to Tehran, Iran, and the Hamas leaders there met with the Iranian leadership to plan the elimination of the state of Israel. Hamas, not mentioned in the Word of God, but when you look back in the book of Genesis, that's where all prophecy begins, In Genesis chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, it talks about how Esau was tricked out of his birthright and the blessing from his father. That was done by the conniving Jacob who became, well, the 12 tribes of Israel and the Jewish people today. 
Esau, and then in chapter 36 of Genesis, in verse 12, mentions Amalek, his grandson. These are the forefathers of the Palestinian people today. This is key that you understand that. Hamas has a desire to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. So does Iran. That's why they are partnering together. Ezekiel chapter 35, verses 1 to 9, talks about the Palestinians who will steal the land from the Jewish people after they kill the Jewish people. And Hamas and Iran calling for the total destruction of the Jewish nation. However, Obadiah, the ancient Jewish prophet, says in verses 15 to 18 that the Palestinians will be the ones destroyed, the final battle, the destruction of Amalek when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. Itamar Marcus, he says that the Palestinian claims that Jews are Judaizing Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, well, that's historically and biblically wrong. Jerusalem is promised to the Jewish people forever. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. In the Davidic covenant, God gave the Jewish people the city of Jerusalem forever. Nobody will be able to run them out of Jerusalem. And in fact, God has chosen Jerusalem, Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, to dwell among the Jewish people forever. Winky Madad explained that the Jews for the next three weeks are focused on a time of mourning, a period praying for and remembering the destruction of the first two temples, Solomon's Temple and Herod's Temple, both destroyed. God's word calls for a temple to be in the city of Jerusalem now and into the future, and that next temple will be the Tribulation Temple. Well, everything has been prepared for that temple to be built. And then after that, when Jesus returns, he builds the Messiah's temple. That's the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 46. John Rood talked about the new British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. He has some problems with Brexit and with Iran. Brexit could bring down the number of the European Union members to 10, which is what Daniel 7 calls for. And the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 12, says there will be 10 members, and that will be the revived Roman Empire. And David James and I had a discussion about public school sex education. You know, the bottom line for all of education is the responsibility of the parents of the children. We cannot delegate that responsibility to anyone else. And parents are not only responsible for all of their education, but in particular their sex education. It must be biblical. And those reports from our broadcast partners help us to understand where we are in God's time today. All of these current events that we've talked about fit into the prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible. Each report seems to say that the Next event, the rapture of the church could happen at any moment, so these prophecies will then be fulfilled. That means the rapture could happen, in fact, even today and at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today.